A few people have asked me this morning, and I'm sure you'll wonder as we move along through the sermon. You can see um, I'm doing my best Jimmy Fallon impersonation this morning. I've got this giant bandage on my ring finger, and um, I got in a in a scuffle with a hedge trimmer yesterday, and it resulted in some stitches, and it was pretty ugly, and it was very difficult to type my sermon last night, but uh, I'm here and relatively pain-free, so... Last Saturday was a little more uneventful, uh, but not just in maybe in a different way. Uh, I took my son, Jack Dallas, to his first ever OSU football game at Boone Pickens Stadium. And somewhere in Jack's short upbringing, completely undirected by his parents, the boy has become a diehard Oklahoma State fan. Uh, He loves OSU, and I've told him to get ready for a life full of disappointment, but... (laughs) But he remained steadfast and loyal, as you can see there. He was pretty fired up to, uh, to be there at the game. And if you were there or if you watched the game on TV, you know that we were treated to a really good contest. OSU beat K-State 36-34. The game was won on a last-minute field goal by Cowboy kicker Ben Grogan. And anyway, I saw something this week, maybe you saw it too, that, that I thought was worth sharing. It's a letter. And it's from Kansas State's head football coach, Bill Snyder, to OSU place kicker Ben Grogan, the the guy I just spoke of a second ago. And here's a photo of the letter. You might not be able to read it, so I'm going to read its contents to you. Just in purple Sharpie on K-State football letterhead, it says, Congratulations, Ben. I admire the courage you displayed in hitting the game-winning field goal that, that took great focus and discipline on your part. Wishing you continued success, Coach Snyder. That's, that's frame-worthy, I'd say. Sort of turns us all into K-State fans, or at least Bill Snyder fans. And I share that as a way of drawing our attention to the importance of a letter. Many of you know the importance of a letter. I mean, have you ever gotten a love letter? Or a termination letter? An acceptance letter, a, a welcome letter, a collections letter, a, a letter of apology or appreciation, on and on and on I could go. Lots and lots of letters that we receive. And if a letter is important, which the letters I just named typically are, what do you do? You read it. And maybe you reread it for clarity. And if it's a love letter, you you reread it again and again and again and again. Well, as we get into the book of Titus this morning... We know that we are studying and reading the Word of God. Why else would we be giving it so much attention if it wasn't the Word of God? It is God's Word. But it's a Word that doesn't come to us on angels' wings. We don't stumble across some golden scroll labeled the Word of the Lord. No, it comes by normal human means. And this particular book of the Bible is a letter. Yes, it's God's Word. But its form is that of a first century letter, often called an epistle. 21 of the New Testament's 27 books are epistles or ancient letters, most of them from Paul to newly formed churches and church leaders that were spread out all across the Roman Empire. This one Paul wrote from Macedonia, from a city called Nicopolis. We learned that by reviewing the end of the letter. But I want to read the opening lines of this letter this morning. I'd like for us to read it together. If you haven't already, turn to the short book of Titus. It's right before Philemon. 
right? So you shouldn't have any trouble finding it. The T's are all together. Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, Philemon. So Titus 1, verses 1 through 4, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul writes these words. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God, the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. This is the word of the Lord. A couple things to point out regarding what we just read. First, you may have noticed that these verses comprise one long run-on sentence. Did you notice that? Paul has a way of piling thoughts on top of thoughts on top of thoughts, and that's exactly what he has done here. Greek writing didn't have a tool like parentheses to sort of block off explanatory thoughts from the structure of a sentence. So a lot of times you just get things sort of piled together. Paul is really good at that if you've ever read any of his letters. Second, this is the second longest greeting in all of Paul's 13 letters. Only Romans has a longer greeting than Titus, and depending on how you count the, the words, maybe Galatians as well. So for a compact letter like Titus, just 46 verses, Paul gives an extremely long and clumsy greeting. Is it okay to call the inspired word clumsy? I just did, so let's just keep going. I'm going to break the greeting into two parts this morning. From the first part, we'll look at the really first, at the nature of the messenger and then the nature of the message. Then in the second part, we'll look at the status of the receiver and the salvation that we receive. So let's dive into part one, the nature of the messenger. Verse one begins with the name Paul. We talked about Pauline authorship last week when I introduced the letter, but I'll just circle back and confirm that Paul is the writer of this epistle. A very small number of liberal scholars try to say it was written by some of Paul's disciples after his death, but their evidence for this is very, very thin. Plus, if you were actually a disciple of Paul, I'm pretty sure your relationship and respect for Paul would restrain you from forging an epistle with his name attached. So we're going to stick with Paul as the author. And it's important to stick with Paul because so much of this greeting and really this whole letter is rooted in Paul's apostleship. One of the primary intentions of this letter is for Paul to delegate his apostolic authority to his protege, Titus, the man that he had left in Crete to set the churches in order. So just for the sake of clarity... As we talk about apostleship, the the office of apostle no longer exists in the church. It's a ministry office reserved for the original disciples of Jesus, and then Matthias, who was named an apostle after Judas betrayed Jesus, and then also Paul, who who, who Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. So you had 12 apostles and Paul, who was declared an apostle to the Gentiles. But look at how Paul describes himself. We see the nature of his identity in this first greeting. First, he calls himself a servant or a bond servant of God. 
And you remember from your study of the Old Testament that there were two types of slaves or servants in Israel. There were temporary slaves, which meant after a set period of time, these servants, these slaves, they were to be set free. It might be at the end of their payment of a debt. It might be, by, might be at the end of sort of a seven-year Sabbath cycle, or it might be in the Jubilee year, the 50th year. But servants were, were not to be permanently kept in the status of a slave. But at the same time, there was also a provision for a slave who, who, who permanently and personally committed himself to his master. He was called a bond servant. <clears throat> so by this slave's own initiation and by his own volition, this servant could say to his master, I'm committed to your service. I want to serve you always. And and Paul begins this letter by saying, that's what kind of servant I am. I am a doulos. I'm a bond servant of God. A man willingly self-committed to, to permanent service to God. Which I should point out, nowhere else in all of Paul's other letters does he refer to himself as a bond servant of God. Only here. Only here, which forces us to think about why. Why the unique description of his slave status in the book of Titus? Again, we have a clear reason in the Old Testament. Slave of God, servant of God, is frequently used in the Old Testament as a designation of special people. How special? Well, how about Abraham? Servant or slave of God is a title given to Abraham in Psalm 105. Then Moses is called a servant of God. David is called a servant of God. Elijah is called a servant of God. Daniel is called a servant or slave of God. All of them carry this distinction. So while servant of God is on the surface a humble designation, it's also a very distinguished title. So it's a title Paul uses intentionally to address the fact that just as these Old Testament saints and prophets spoke for God, He, Paul, he also speaks for God. The other title Paul gives himself in verse 1 is something I've already alluded to. It's that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he says this to point out that he did not call himself. Paul did not call himself to the ministry. He did not just wake up and see the movement of the church and said, you know, I'm going to lead that. No, he was sent by Christ into the ministry. That's what apostle means, sent one or messenger He's a messenger of Jesus Christ, from Jesus Christ. This is rooted in Acts chapter 9, of course. That's the conversion of Paul. Though Paul was on his way to Damascus to to persecute and to kill Christians, he was met by the Lord Jesus Christ, and in meeting Jesus Christ, Paul was utterly changed, everything about him. He was converted, he was humbled, and he was called into special service. And so the Apostle Paul will remind Christians that he was not called to the ministry by a fellow apostle. He did not learn the gospel from another man. He learned the gospel and was called into ministry by the risen, ascended, physical Christ in person. And so when Paul says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, that means he's been vested with the authority of Christ. 
that he's a messenger of Jesus Christ, that he's been, the, he's been given the ability to speak on Christ's behalf to his people. And that is exactly what he means by this designation, an apostle of Jesus Christ. It comes right out of his experience with God's grace. And again, this is not maybe as humble as it is intentional. Paul very clearly he knows and he has this sense of mission. He knows what, he, what he's here for. He knows his purpose in life, which is to be a bondservant of God and an emissary of Jesus Christ. He is gladly, willingly, wholeheartedly, and permanently, as a bondservant, committed to this purpose. So let's move from the nature of the messenger to now the nature of the message. The bulk of the sermon will be spent here on this second point because the bulk of Paul's greeting is spent giving what Bible scholar Philip Towner calls a long interpretation of his apostolate. What Paul lays out in these next two and a half verses is his job description as an apostle. So these verses explain why he does what he does, why Paul does what he does in ministry. We see four features explained in verses 1 through 3. First, Paul's ministry is for the faith of God's elect. So what that means is the purpose for Paul's slavery to God, for his apostolic mission, is to bring the elect to saving faith. Now, Some of you really like that word elect here in verse 1, and you can't wait to hear what I have to say about it. Others of you don't really like the word elect, and maybe you get a little anxious when it shows up in Scripture, and some of you haven't really ever thought about this word and aren't really quite sure what it's talking about anyway. So let me first point out that what's being talked about when we see the word elect in Scripture, and I'll try to do this just by reading the way the New American Standard Bible translates this verse. It says, for the faith of those chosen of God. So when we talk about election, we're talking about those whom God has chosen to be saved through faith in his Son, Jesus Christ. And some of you are saying, well, I don't believe in election. I don't believe God plays duck, duck, damn with people. I don't think he operates that way. And I understand that response. The problem is, is if you read the Bible, you have to believe in some form of election. You have to hold a view because the word elect or election comes up continually throughout Scripture. So everybody has a view of election. The question is what view you have. There are two basic views of election. The first is what is called foresight election. Foresight election. And this view holds that, God's elect peop- that God elects people on the basis of foreseen faith. A great majority of evangelicals, consciously or unconsciously, hold to this concept of election, that, that God looked down the quarter of time and in his foreknowledge saw who would accept Christ and then elected them for salvation. So in this view, faith precedes election. It's a very popular view. I have many, many friends who hold to this view of election. The other prominent view is called unconditional election. And it's the view that, that, that says God in eternity past chose people for salvation, that there was nothing inherently better or different about these people which caused, them, which caused God to choose them. No, not at all. Just that he, God, in his sovereign grace, 
He elected them. He chose them unconditionally. Therefore, God was totally free in his decision to to show grace and mercy to elect sinners who really deserved nothing other than his wrath because of their sin and unbelief. And in my mind, this second view is the biblical view of election. Unconditional election, I think, is what the Bible teaches. And some of you might be asking, well, Jay, are you saying that, that people who come to salvation are saved because God chose them to be saved? Yeah, I am. But more importantly, I think the Bible is saying that. And I'm just echoing what the Bible teaches. It's all throughout Scripture, John 6.37. John 6.37, Jesus says, right after giving the bread of life discourse, he says, all that the Father has given me will come to me. A few verses later in John 6.44, Jesus says, no one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. The word for draws is literally drags. You don't come on your own. You have to come by the overpowering will of God the Father. Again, in John 15, 16, it says this, really as specifically as it could ever be said, Jesus to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. He didn't choose me, I chose you. That pattern follows through in the, in the teaching of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 13, when Paul and Barnabas spoke out and when they preached boldly in Antioch, it says, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. As many as been appointed to eternal life believed. You come to Romans, you find the very same thing is taught in Romans, Romans 9, Romans chapter 9, Paul reaching back to the Old Testament. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Moving on in that chapter, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. You find it coming into Ephesians chapter 1. Paul again, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, he predestined us to adoption as sons. Not just Paul, the apostle Peter in in the letter that's bearing his name, 1 Peter 1.1, to those who are chosen, Peter says. Our names, Revelation says, were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. So if you're saved, it's because you were, by God's grace, chosen. We'll see a little bit more about that as we study further into Titus. But I hope you feel, when, when, when you think about being chosen by God's grace, that, that, that you feel not a sense of arrogance or a sense of superiority, but an overwhelming sense of humility. This is not a prideful doctrine. This is not a doctrine that gives you glory. It gives God glory, which is characteristic of all true doctrine. But note here, note what is highlighted Note that divine choice made in eternity past is activated in time by personal faith. Divine choice made in eternity past is activated in time by personal faith. The chosen, the elect, they're they're not saved apart from faith. They're not chosen and otherwise lost and not following Jesus, not realizing their 
unique status. No, the the elect have faith. Paul is saying they're chosen of God, and I've been sent as an apostle for the activation of their faith. They can't be saved without personal faith. For for, for by grace you are saved, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by faith. Paul says, I know my mission. My mission is to give the elect their opportunity to hear the saving gospel so they can believe and, re- and be redeemed. That's my mission. That's my purpose. And Paul knew that it wasn't up to him. He knew that it wasn't his cleverness that converted people. It wasn't the unique, sort of the unique nature of his style that converted people. It wasn't the depth of his own ability to, 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 to reason and preach and think that converted people. What he knew was the simple gospel. And when its truth hit the heart of the elect, it brought about conversion. It brought about saving faith. The elect will respond to the gospel, which, which, which means the simplicity of ministry, really, is its genius. It's not, it's not a question of repackaging it or, or making it hip or cool or relevant. It's simply delivering it, delivering the gospel. And trusting that God will take care of the outcome. So the knowledge of the gospel elicits faith by the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of those who are chosen. Which is to say, election precedes faith. Back in 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul says that he's willing, in verse 9, to suffer hardship. That he's willing to suffer even imprisonment. I'll suffer anything, Paul says, for this reason. Why? Why does he endure such hardship, such pain, such torture? I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, for the sake of the elect, Paul says. Why? In order that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. I'll endure anything to get the elect saved. That's Paul's purpose as an apostle. That God has a people for himself Those people must come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. To come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, they must hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul is this emissary commanded to take it to them. But that's not his whole purpose. He also labors for their knowledge of the truth. It's not enough in Paul's mind to have salvation. We must have the knowledge of the truth. The word for knowledge there isn't simply the word gnosis. It actually has a prefix attached to it. It's the prefixed epi, so epigenosis, which that points to, that, so that sort of bolsters the term. It points to, to thorough, complete, full knowledge. The work Paul is burdened for as an apostle is not to see people know, but to see them have a thorough knowledge of Christ and his word. And that's what we want to do at Enid excuse me, Enid Enby Church as well. Warren Wiersbe said, local churches ought to be Bible schools. And he's exactly right. People have to be learning the Bible, learning God's Word, learning what He has revealed for their benefit and for their growth if they are to grow. But knowledge isn't the end game. Knowledge isn't the whole point. Look at the result of knowledge. Knowledge is to, according to Paul, accord with godliness. Paul's saying, I don't simply want them to have more information than other people. I don't simply want them to be smarter than other people. I'm not interested in them knowing certain facts that other people don't know. The point is them having a depth of truth that transforms their lives, that accords with godliness, that adorns the gospel. 
to truth that is unto godliness. This is not the last time in this book that Paul will explain the connection between sound theology and godly living. Repeatedly, Paul will return to the theme of good works in Titus. It's one of the great burdens of this letter. Rooted in the gospel, ready for good works. Godliness is the yardstick of the truth, one commentator said. And he's right. As you increase in knowledge, you increase in godliness. If not, something is desperately wrong, probably the wrong knowledge. And this sets up the primary problem with the false teachers that were in Crete. That's something we'll discuss later as we move on through the letter. And then Paul points out the energizing cause for the ministry that he has. The energizing cause for what he's committed himself to, it's the hope of eternal life. Eternal life is the basic incentive of Paul's ministry as an apostle. There's nothing more significant than eternity. He ministers as as an apostle in the hope of eternal life, and his hope is not speculative. Hope is certain. And as Christians, this is our hope as well. If we have trusted in Christ, we possess eternal life and we long for eternal life. We have abundant life in Christ, but we haven't entered into that eternal state. We don't have it all yet. And I can look out on you as an audience this morning, and I know we don't have it all yet, right? And you look at me and you say, man, that was rude. You don't have it all yet either. Look at your finger. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. I don't have it all yet either. We don't have it all yet, we have a, but, but we do have a secure salvation, a salvation accomplished in Christ and sealed by the Holy Spirit. But when our eternal glorified life is actualized, that's when we'll have, that's when we'll have eternal life in its fullest development. Do you long for that day? I long for that day. Paul longed for that day. It was an energizer for his ministry. He operated with a view toward eternal life. And so should we. And this this hope is genuine because as he moves on, he says, God promised it. It's based on the character of God who cannot lie. It is founded on the absolute reliability of God. Why Why did Paul point out that God never lies? Because remember, in Crete where Titus is stationed, building up, putting order to the churches, Crete, on that island, lying was a thoroughly accepted practice. Verse 12, Cretans are liars, it says. Cretizo is the Greek word that means to lie. So it's no wonder the island was named what it was. In fact, Zeus... Zeus, the greatest god in Greek mythology, the god said to be born on the island of Crete, one of, the, one of the chief legends concerning Zeus was a story of his ability to deceive. Our God's not like that. He has made promises and he will keep them. He has manifested these promises in his word. He has delivered on them through the person and work of Christ. And he has entrusted Paul to preach to proclaim that very message. The command of God was given to Paul to preach his fulfilled promises in Christ. And so again, that's the basis of Paul's authority. Paul the apostle had been commanded to preach by God our Savior. So that's part one. 
Let's quickly move through part two, starting with the status of the receiver. The receiver is Titus. And we introduced this last week. Titus was a Greek. He was a native of Antioch. And by the status given to him, we learn two more things about Titus. One, he was Paul's true child, which means he was probably a convert of Paul. He was, on, he was one of the elect who exercised faith in Christ through the preaching of Paul there in Antioch. And subsequently, Titus would go on and he would minister widely with Paul. Paul had great confidence in Titus. Titus had a strength of character that, that really he served as Paul's troubleshooter in ministry. He would go to places like Corinth that were messy, ugly churches. He would, he would go to Macedonia and, and collect money from the most impoverished churches there to take to those who were hurting in Jerusalem. He would be sent to a place like Crete, that was notorious for its immorality. The second thing that we see about this receiver's status is that he and Paul shared a common faith. This means the faith that Paul just described in those verses I just explained, verses 1 through 3, he and Titus share it in common. It belonged to both of them. Paul, a Jew steeped in the law, circumcised, shared a common faith with Titus, a Greek, uncircumcised, with a pagan upbringing. These two share a common faith. How important would that be for people in the first century church to see and to understand? It's huge. Again, Crete was a place that in Acts chapter 2, at the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached and thousands were saved. It said that people from Crete were there and they, they took the message back to their island. They were Jews. But again, Crete is a Greek island, so you have a clash of cultures, a clash of worldviews. And so with this letter, you have Paul steeped in Judaism, giving charge to Titus, a full-on, thorough Greek, a common faith they have. And the larger point, given the purpose of the letter, is, is that, that Titus is, is being given the authority of the Apostle Paul. Important because Paul, as a servant of God, has been given authority by God. So the authority of God given to Paul, Paul is now delegating to his protege Titus. Paul is declaring a profound status to Titus as receiver of this letter, a true child in the common faith, and he's giving additional status as he delegates that apostolic authority to Titus. You see the importance of a letter? This letter is really important. If Titus is going to set things in order, which we're going to talk about in the weeks to come, that's the charge that Paul has given to him. Set the things going on in the churches to order. He, he needs a word like this from Paul. He needs the backing of Paul. He needs the apostolic character and authority and calling of Paul. Let's finish with this. Let's finish with the salvation we receive. To close the greeting, Paul references Christ as our Savior. Interestingly, only in his letter to Titus does Paul refer to Christ as Savior. 
In fact, the the term Savior is used six times in this letter. That's more than all of, of Paul's other letters combined. He's already used the term once at the end of verse 3 where he calls God our Savior. So in doing it again, Paul is applying divinity also to Christ. God is our Savior. Christ is our Savior. They work hand in hand through the process of salvation. And it's a salvation that we receive by grace. And that grace is the only gateway to lasting peace with God. Grace and peace from God our Father and Savior, Jesus Christ. The salvation put forth in this letter is one of grace from Christ our Savior. It's not a salvation to be achieved. It's not one program of salvation for Jews and a different program for Gentiles. It's not to be earned or accomplished by our efforts. None of those, none of those methods, none of those approaches results in peace. It's a salvation that is received, received by God's grace through faith in Christ our Savior. And if you're here today and, and, and you've, you've never put your trust in Christ, you've trusted in lots of things. You've trusted in yourself. You've trusted in your own acumen. Maybe you've trusted in your own righteousness. Maybe you've just re- trusted in lots of rotten things that haven't really gotten you anywhere. You can put your trust in Jesus Christ. That simply means you're putting your, your faith in him. And that faith is coming to you, it's calling to you, it's drawing to you, it's drawing you in by God's grace. And if it's by God's grace, it will give you a a kind of peace like you've never had. You search for peace, you long for peace, you're upset by your lack of peace. And you might be able to arrange things and set things in good order for a season, but you know all the time without peace with God, there is no real peace. Well, grace and peace, those two words together, that's a clear sign of what God is offering you through Jesus Christ, your Savior. If you call to him and put your faith in him, you can be saved today. It doesn't require any hoops to jump through or any special practices. It simply requires you acknowledging your sin, acknowledging that Christ died on the cross for that sin, was resurrected as proof that what he did there was paid in full, and you look to him for his saving grace and power. Let's go to the Lord together. Father, we thank you for our time in your word this morning. We thank you for what's here in the book of Titus, and even in just the the, the simple greeting, we see so much grace, so much truth. Lord, I I pray that the Holy Spirit would just illuminate hearts and minds, that that the Holy Spirit would fill in all the gaps that I left open this morning. And Lord, that those that have gathered here and heard your word proclaimed and heard it preached, Lord, that, that they would go back to it. And they would have greater understanding, greater knowledge of the truth. And that it would accord to godliness. It would change their lives. It would work out in how they live and in how they go to work and how they raise kids. And how it is they do every, everything they do each day. Lord, if there's, anyone, if there's anyone here that does not know you, has not trusted in Christ, I pray that that person would be draw to, drawn to saving faith today. 
We thank you for Christ and we gather in his name and we pray that he's received glory through what we've sung, what we've said, what we've preached. It's Christ's name that we pray. Amen.